Welcome back to the SCBWI podcast, our series of long-form interviews with some of the most influential and interesting people working in children's books. My name is Theo Baker, and on today's show I talked with Deborah Halverson, editor extraordinaire, author of Writing Young Adult Fiction for Dummies and Fiction Books, Honk If You Hate Me, and Big Mouth, about competitive eating, and founder of the awesome site DearEditor.com which is a fount of practical and invaluable info. And I'm sure most everyone listening has spent some late night hours digging through its deep archive of content. Deborah knows what's up. She's the ideal editor every one of us should carry around behind our left ears. She's sharp, she's clear, she's knowledgeable, she believes in your work. Deborah has real answers to real questions. It's the kind of guidance that respects the actual challenges all of us face and makes a difference that can really help your project have a happy and long life in the real world. We talked about building tension, defining the structure of your manuscript's problems, pinpointing its problems, world building, and also, but just as importantly, how to learn about the market, spot trends, understand demographics, and how to make your work stand out from the slush pile. So let's get to it, and welcome to the program, Deborah Halverson. So we're so pleased to have you here, Deborah. You've been an editor for for a long time and you've seen everything. And editors often talk about things like voice and character and, you know, these very grand things. Now, writers are working on a level of different challenges, like the daily challenges of just sort of trying to get stuff out. How is what writers face on a daily level, those obstacles, how can they start to apply the kind of things that editors talk about and look for? I've been editing since I started with Harcourt in 1995. So that's quick math, what, 25, 27 years, somewhere about there. So I have learned a lot about how editors express what they're seeing in a manuscript I've been on the writer's side because I do write my own books for young people. So I understand what it is to try and interpret it. So I understand both sides of that. And so when writers are trying to figure out how do I make a manuscript, a story, have a strong voice or make the dialogue sound realistic, I like to get into the actual techniques of how that can happen. And I think I learn best that way. And I hear messages best that way when I get examples. So often people will ask me to, to say, I, I want to make this a middle grade novel, or, or maybe even this is interesting. They'll write a novel and they'll say, I'm not sure if it's middle grade or YA. And there are such great differences with that in voice and in the narrative sensibility. So I can, I can break that down for people what those would be a middle grade novel with a mindset for young people of that age might be focused on the most immediate circle of that young person, family, school, neighborhood, that sort of thing. The YA characters, they'll start looking out in the greater world and their, their speech, the things they think about, the things that they focus on in the narrative will reflect that. Young people will worry about the impact on their friends and the younger readers on their friends and their friendship circles. And the YA person will realize that they're affecting a lot of other people. It's not so much what's happening to them. It's what I'm doing to them. They're a lot more, they're a lot more aware of their own agency 
and they're becoming more aware of that own agency. And by the end of the book, they will have made some kind of jump in that realization of their own power. And so that's fun for me to help writers navigate when I'm editing. You've written uh, two YA novels yourself, Honk If You Hate Me and Big Mouth about competitive eating, which, which is hysterical and lovely. And so I was just wondering, like, if that experience writing, because, right, you know, as a writer, like, what you need is to f- feel something strongly about the situation, right? And to get it out. And there has to be some juice there for you as a writer. And an editor is kind of looking at things a little bit more coolly and dispassionately and saying, this part isn't working. This is So when you're working with writers, how can you kind of help them to tap whatever they feel that strongly that they needed to get out into kind of the structure of a working book? Theo, we did an interview on my writer's advice website, DearEditor.com, a number of years ago. And one of the things you said in that about your own experience with editors is that editors read in such a particular way that they can see problems way down the road. And at the time you were talking about working with an editor in the early stages of a project, but it really does speak to what I think most editors and certainly I do try to develop in their style is to read a manuscript where we're seeing a scene and we're already starting to work out how can this affect things later down the road. And as we get deeper into the manuscript, we start seeing, well, this didn't play out. You know, it kind of got dropped. I'm working on one without giving any away where there's a step family involved as a, as a subplot. And it's not, it hasn't affected all the other things that are happening at school and in this person's life. And I can see that it's very important to this author to include that material in there. She wants to explore what happens when a step family is involved, but the character literally just goes there one or two weekends and they don't appear in the story elsewhere. So I said, we can just, we can just take that out and save it for another book. It's really important for you to write about it. That's for another book. None of those characters are impacting the main storyline. You take on a family pet from that, that subplot, but you already have a family pet and that pet allows you to go out walking in the neighborhood and see what you need to see. So you don't need that. So an editor will come in and assess if all of the parts are working and they'll try to explain to you why they're not. And hopefully that's what we can see. And we start anticipating. And when there's a payoff, when we see where something's mentioned early in the book, affects the story later on, I will actually cheer and I'll put little happy faces in the margins and like, that's what needed to happen. Well then, and I think writers probably do it, but you can tell me otherwise I can't read a book or watch a TV show without watching how the storyline is developing and critiquing that. And I rarely will be like, Oh, that was terrible, but I'll see, I would have done this differently or that was excellent. I applaud that it worked well done. I'm rarely surprised watching or reading, you know, storylines develop. I read a ton and I've written. So I see where I, re- I see what they're doing. Right. Like. And so if something is surprises me, if I'm watching something or reading something, I think, well, fantastic. So one thing that I'm always interested because you've read so much and you've worked with so many accomplished writers and you've seen the good and the bad and the dross and the and the brilliant what for you stands out when you're reading something and you're thinking, yes, you know, it's as simple as that. Yes, there's something here. I can work with this. The writing will have a strong sense of 
I, I avoid using voice because that throws people off. What is that? I mean, that's the existential question in many <laughs> cases for writers. I like to see that a writer understands paragraphing, when to jump to a next paragraph. They understand the sentence variety. They understand the cadence of exactly what narration they've chosen. If it's a first person narration, it should sound very close to dialogue because it's spinning out of the character's head. Not exactly, but more like that. But if they've chosen not to do that, then it gets to be, you get to get a little more complex in the sentencing. And when I see someone handling that well from the get-go, that's when I know that they've found their voice. They know what that's going to be. And if they haven't, if they sound too old, you know, it sounds like a, a grown-up trying to talk like a kid, I can go in there and say, you need more shorter sentences, maybe, more direct statements. A lot of them need to be focused on, include not necessarily the word I, but the point of view of the character's opinion about something. And often it's how does this thing affect me? A common example I like to point to is, you know, the pizza guy comes to the door and mom lets him in and lets him have pizza with us. You know, I know that she's lonely and she does that, but it embarrasses me. That's kind of an elevated awareness of another person. The younger you are, the less likely you are to be taking mom's feelings into account. And you might be more like, oh my God, there's a pizza guy in here. Mom keeps doing this to me. Why does she do this to me? I'm going to die if my friends find out, if he tells everyone. You know, it's more the impact on me. And when I can see that an author has wrestled that, and, and you can feel it right in the, first, in the first pages, then I'm excited. I feel like I'm going to get a story that maybe the plot will need massaging. Maybe the characters need some work. But I feel like the, the author understands what they've set out to do and how to accomplish it. And that's exciting. Let's go back in time a little bit. I'd love to just kind of get a background of where you come from with books. Can you just tell me a little a bit about your early interactions with books and when they hit you or what, what excited you about books and continues to, to, to this day? I was that child that went into the library and put so many books in your hand and piled up to your nose and you try and struggle out to the car with it because you're taking all of those home and you read them within a week. My mom used to take me to the library and she would put no cap on what I could get. And so I read everything that was interesting to me as I walked through the door and saw the cover. My parents had a vast library in the garage of their books. And so I was reading their spy novels, their Tom Clancy and all of that, and alongside Super Fudge. I really wanted to share what I was so excited about with my sisters that I started reading Fudge and Super Fudge aloud to them at night. Um, it kind of fell apart as a reading activity. But I did revive it with my own kids. And as you know, I have triplet boys and I started reading to them every night when they were little. And I'm so proud that we did that as a nightly exercise until they were juniors and they were just too busy in school to do it. But I think I feel like it's something I like to share with people. So it's not surprising to me that I wanted to go into publishing and work around people who talk about books all the time and stories all the time. I did not know I was going to go into children's books. I happen to live in San Diego and not in New York. So how was I going to work in publishing that way? I knew I wanted to do that. I studied English in college and eventually got a master's in American literature while I was working at Harcourt. But I knew I wanted to do something. What could I do in San Diego? Well, it turns out Harcourt 
publishers. What were they back then? Harcourt, Brace, Jovanovich. They had an office in San Diego and I applied there six times to try and get in. And I got to know the human resources guy pretty well. And he'd call me and say, there's another opening. And they had a section for adult novels and for young children's books. They also had books for emergency workers. They had tax publications that they did. I just kept applying. And I literally walked around to, I believe it was 42 different places that were magazines, local publications with my resume. I finally got an interview with the managing editor in children, the children's books division for a, an editorial assistant position. It's the opening position. I did not get the job and I was very sad. So after that, I thought I'm going to do, I'm going to change some things. I went and I got a copy editing certificate and I worked for an information publisher and I wrote and edited video game instructions for them, which was great fun. This was 1994. The internet was just becoming a thing. And what we would do, we would write the video game instructions and video rental stores. They rented video games. They would print out the instructions we wrote. It's just a one-page quick sheet. But that impressed the managing editor when that same job came open a year later. And so I got the job. And on my first day walking into the office, they had an art show. And in children's books, when the art comes in for a book, when it's finished and it's sent in to the editor, they lay it all out on a table. They put, they cut in and place all the text from each page in the book. And the entire company came around and looked at it. These are people who had only seen the books on financial forms or production schedules. And they would walk around and they would read the book with the art finally there. And it was the most joyous experience I've ever had. These were people who love books. And I, that was the first thing I did on my first day. I walked into there and I thought, I found my people. And I knew I was going to be in children's books from there on out. And I was, and I have been. And utter joy um, knowing that even the people on your publishing team who aren't actively working with you like an editor are so excited about what you're doing. Oh, that's that's a beautiful story. I, I can see it because, yeah, right? You often think, oh, they don't care. No, every, everyone cares. So when you were editing, what separated for you the professional or the ready for the world or in some form versus the stuff that's not quite ready yet? What is that thing? If there is a thing, one thing. It's an interesting experience to get to receive the submissions. Um, it's a little different now because they come electronically. We would get them literally in the mail. Originally, in, in those early days, boxes or on big envelopes with the manuscripts, and you'd open them. So it's a little different now when you open up the manuscript on your computer. But, you know, I, I suppose there could be days when you're rushed and moving through things. But for the most part, you open it up, and it's kind of like that little mystery package. What is this going to be? And it really does. I'm not sure that ever goes away. You, you learn the concept first. And so you're already predisposed to think this is my kind of thing to read. Or if you're reading for your boss, you know, this is the kind of thing they want to read. And so if you're intrigued by that concept, you're already going into the opening pages thinking, okay, I hope you can, you can do this, make it as, as exciting as I think it can be. And then you start engaging with that. And everyone talks about voice. That's one of the first things you hear. But you also are looking for a character that um, sounds like someone you want to hang out with for a while. And so getting to know the character in the opening scene is really a vital thing. And that's why so many people recommend 
against falling into the trap of building your world and explaining how the character's world works first. There's plenty of time for that to happen. I'd rather come into a story and pretty quickly find out about the character. Perhaps this young girl is up on her porch roof trying to get a cat out of the tree. And I find out instantly that she's a compassionate person. She's going to risk herself for other people. While she's up there, I will find out details about the world. I will find out what she sees from up there, if the porch is going to support her, if it's a rotted kind of porch or if it's a big yard. You know, you start putting the world building details in there, but it's all that's all in the background of supporting this character who is expressing who they are by what they're doing in that opening scene. And I think that's the most immediate thing that I look for and respond to when I'm opening up a manuscript. And then you've got me and I'm curious to see what happens to that person. So I will follow the story for them. While you were talking about this, I was just started reading this M.T. Anderson and Eugene Yelchin book. And I know you've worked with M.T. Anderson. He was really sweet. He wrote the foreword for writing young adult fiction for dummies. And it's his usual brilliance. Yeah. And what, what you were saying something about connecting to that character right away. This book is crazy. It's about a, a goblin and it's it's all over the place. But in the first chapter, in the first paragraph of like the first chapter, actually, it's this, the third chapter. But you're first meeting this character for the world for the first time, and he's got so much world-building work to do, he says, the character is unable to sleep. He turned to one side for a while, staring at the wall, then turned to the other, staring at his bedroom door. His pillow was too hot, and his hands were still cold. Like, I don't care how crazy the world is, right? You're right in there with this weird orc goblin, and you're connected immediately with this kind of human connection to shared sensations, shared experiences, that entryway. That's a really intimate moment with the character. You're, you're in there in their most vulnerable moment, and it does have those sensations, those sensory details in there. So it, it sounds simple. You know, he's tossing in bed and his hands are cold and his feet are warmer. I might have got that reversed. But all of a sudden, you are very intimately connected to that character. And I think that's wonderful. And it stuck with you. You remembered it, didn't you? Yes, because... So many times, you know, you get the, these grandiose ideas, right, for a world. And how to invite someone into that is always a challenge. So it's easy and comfortable and you like it there. And it doesn't matter how much you set up if, if someone doesn't like it there immediately. Right. I just finished reading Getaway by Lamar Giles. It's <laughs> really well written. It's a dystopian YA in that it has a whole separate world that is blocked off from the rest of the world, it's like a theme park world. And they don't know about the awful things that are happening on the outside world. And you get pulled into that world because the main character, the there are multiple points of view, but there's particularly one driving character tells you what it's like to, to go about his job, which is working in this theme park. And we get the pieces of the theme park in this crazy world. And that's a lot of world building that needs to be done, but we access through the character first. And we often hear people say, you have to start with action. The action doesn't have to be a car explosion. The action can be the tossing and the turning in bed. You know, something that reveals that character. And not to put too much emphasis on him being in bed, it can yeah. be, well, it can be a problem that you don't want to start necessarily every book with, I woke up to get ready for school, you know, that opening right. scene. You can pick a place. First day of school, new town, right? <laughs> no, no, it's it's fun to find these moments that are 
not expected. I mean, that's why I give the example of the girl on the porch. That's a not expected moment. You know, where, you know, start in midday is good too. And there can be a reason to start in the morning, but um, don't feel like you have to start your story there, most certainly. <laughs> We've been talking with Deborah Halverson. We have more real talk after the break. But in the meantime, be sure to check out Deborah's sites, DebraHalverson.com, where you can find all the latest and learn about Deborah's freelance editorial services, and DearEditor.com, where any question I didn't ask has probably been asked and answered there. Also, check out the Revision Week archive. It's very, very good. Don't be afraid to command F Theo. You might find something there. Okay, let's get back to Deborah. Part two begins now. You talk a lot about in your editorial advice about raising the stakes, creating tension, going to extreme places to draw out this story or to draw out something from yourself. That's a mistake I find a lot of people make as well is they don't say, hey, you know, this is my story. I can do whatever I want. Might as well make it as crazy as possible because I don't have to be there. I just get to imagine it. Even if you have a fantastic world, sometimes bad books will dwell in the most boring parts of the world. I consider myself as a writer, a writer of stories of ordinary people in extreme circumstances. And my idea of extreme isn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, zombies chasing you like in the wonderful Dread Nation, which is set in Civil War area with zombies. My idea of extreme was people who do these eating competitions, right? They're eating 77 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes, or at the time, I think it was 54 hot dogs and buns in 12 minutes. And what if a normal kid wants to immerse himself in that world, wants to become that world? In Honk If You Hate Me, this was a normal girl who was made famous by an event out of her control. It was inspired by the story of when we were Gosh, when I was a little kid, a little girl fell into a pipe in the ground and the the nation was riveted for three days as they got her out. And so every year they would go and visit her and do a where are they now segment. And she was an adult and they were still showing up on her porch. Where is she now? Maybe Jessica. That's who it was. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to find out what is it like to be a normal person who has this extreme thing happening to them. And so I wrote a story about a girl who did something when she was little and 10 years later, they're showing up for, she set the town factory on fire and burned it down. And there's one of those towns where you depended on the factory. And so 10 years later, people are showing up to find out where is she now? And she keeps getting reminded about this and people keep being reminded how much they hate her. Um, So she has to work through that. So I think that you can have extreme situations within a normal daily life it feels extreme to the character themselves and that's Mm. why it's so overwhelming to them so if you've got something that you're intrigued to explore i do encourage people to push things to extremes to to stress out their characters if they're not stressed out enough take things away from characters maybe they like to hide in their room for sanctuary to calm down after a rough day have them come home and mom or dad has decided to redecorate their room and they can't go in there now, you know, or lock the door and they've lost their key and they can't get in. And now they're forced to go out and keep dealing with this extreme 
emotion. And that's probably the most important thing. It's extreme emotions, um, extreme stresses, extreme tensions. And that can come up in any form from financial stresses to social stresses, that sort of thing. So I think you can get extreme feelings from any story. And so I push people to find that. Right. Those situations where you feel something strongly about it. And then like kind of a story you know, suggests itself, right? You can put people in extremes where you can feel something as a writer. And I want to pivot to this uh, question because it's something that I'd love to hear your take on, um, which is that like a lot of people, you know, I've been in critique groups and I've gotten feedback and learning how to use good information that people give you. You know, oftentimes if you have 10 people reading something like in a critique group, I've always found two people are only going to naturally like what you're doing anyways. But if people are pointing to an area, their suggestion for what you do might not be correct, but they're actually pointing to probably a problem. The successful writers that you work with, how do they take the information you give them and make good use of it? The writers that I see taking feedback and spinning it into something even better is an exciting thing. And I think the story will benefit from that. I will often, in order to express what I'm having trouble with in a manuscript, I'll offer a solution Mm -hmm. Um, rather than just say what's wrong, I'll offer a solution. And then I'll say, this might not be it, but let it inspire you to find the actual fix. And they may take that and make it even better than I anticipated. Or they will say, well, that's not it, but I now I understand your problem and I can fix it. And they come up with their own ideas. So I think the idea is to listen to, to find out, okay, you think this isn't working, throw out, just brainstorm a solution to me that you think would fix it. And that makes it clear. And it often, it starts the brainstorming pro- uh, process for the author. And what I also find is if I can explain why that example influences two, three, four other aspects of the story and enhances those, the authors get really excited. And so they go in and once you go in and start putting your own spin on things, it always comes back better. Mm. It always does than even what I had imagined. And that's when I'll do that big cheering and smiley facing. Well, it sounds like by offering solutions, what you're actually pointing out is the structure of their problem. You're saying like, I'm answering the problem that's here with a solution, but the solution shows you because sometimes people might look and someone say there's a problem here and the writer will say, no, there's no problem. It's great. Or there's a problem. I don't understand what the problem is, right? You look at a passage and you're like, there's something here that's not clicking. And you can fiddle with that for a long time. And I like the idea of we have to make decisions all the time. So, right. So make a decision and that will show you where you're wrong. I've often thought that writer's block was actually decision block. There are so many decisions we make in, te- in choosing to tell a story. There are so many directions we can go. I find it terrifying as a writer myself. What if I make the wrong choice? Perhaps I just don't haven't figured out what my choices are yet. But what if I make the wrong choice and I can completely freeze myself with that self-doubt? And I understand that self-doubt very much. When I wrote my first book, I did it in the morning before work. I told nobody else that I was writing. I didn't know if I could finish a story from beginning to end myself. I had this idea, these things I wanted to do. I'd always wanted to write. And I knew I was good at writing if someone gave me the ideas. But could I carry a story to the end? So I told no one. My husband even would come home at the end of the day 
And he'd say, did you type a lot? And I'd say, I typed a lot today. I called it typing. And it wasn't until I announced that I had a contract for a book that my coworkers in the publishing, in the editing department, knew I was even writing. So I understand that place. And I understand how you can work yourself into a space of, gosh, making decisions is, is for me, the hardest part. I, I, once I've made that choice, I'm comfortable writing the words on the page. Yeah. But so I can understand that. And so if I can help someone towards decisions, mm-hmm. I feel like that's a successful input. Mm. Yeah, I certainly so- have ideas for other people's problems. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes I found it doesn't even matter if the decision is we can get caught up in, is this the right decision or the wrong decision? You know, maybe who can say, right? Who can prejudge over the horizon? If, it, you know, like you, like we were talking about at the beginning, how editors can kind of see problems over the horizon, you don't always, as a, when you're working on something, it's not always easy to know, like, if this decision is going to be good over the horizon and to try to telegraph that, that can lead to that kind of paralysis, right? Sometimes it just make a decision. It doesn't even matter. And the nice thing is, at least since we're, almost all of us are doing it on computer anyway, you can always pull something out and set it aside, then go back to it. There's a certain safety net there, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about how writers can really be informed about the marketplace and what they can do to really position themselves for success. In this topic, something that always freaks me out is I've seen people, myself included, try to kind of calculate and say, how do I fit in? And then the, the work becomes this, this slog. That idea of trying to calculate where something's going to be and actually limiting yourself, censoring yourself, right? Right. It's exciting to see when there's something that is exciting readers and trending. We've got right now a trend of horror for YA and young readers. But if we step back and look at that, you know, we know that we can't write to what's selling right now because your book is going to be in the pipeline for several years before it comes out, right? So the trend is over. But look at horror. We know that these subjects, these cycles are perennial. They go on and on. R.L. Stein was writing his first horror for middle graders in the 80s. In in the 90s, he was told, well, there's not so much of a market for that. Maybe we won't do it. But then they ended up reviving the series again. And then he went through another cycle where they said, well, there's not so much of a market for that. And now they've revived them again. We've got Goosebumps. We've got Fear Street relaunched or Fear Street again, I forget what it is. So that to me is your example to say, you need to write what you do because if it's not the, if it's not considered the most popular thing right now, it may be soon enough. You may have the readership soon enough. Keep writing what you do. And ultimately we've talked about it. It's a slog if it's not something you're enjoying. So you're going to have to write what you enjoy. I think you need to understand most importantly that you write for the readership, which is changing by the way, when we write for young people, they cycle through and that could be where we get cycles. You know, our middle graders are going to be YAs right now and you're writing for a new batch of middle graders in the coming years. So you need to understand more importantly, what they're interested in developmentally at that age what the problems and themes are at that age. And for the same for teenagers, we know that teenagers have youthful dreams and fears. They think that the world may be a pile of garbage, terrible, on fire right now, but I'm going to triumph. I'm going to do well. 
So understanding that about your teen reader, you're going to always write something that is for the moment of that young person when they pick up that book. It speaks to them as who they are right in that moment. And your topic then becomes what you're excited about and what you want to write about. And sometimes maybe we don't have a big market for historical YA fiction right now, but it only takes one book to blow that up Mm. and everybody wants it. So follow that. So I think the most important thing is to focus on your specific reader and their readership and make it something that they can connect with. And, and that's the place you start. And that's where you find your confidence and your foundation. Do you think people should try to look for gaps in the marketplace and try to fill those or? Well, trying to fill that gap is a two-sided coin. It means there's a space for something to be there, but also maybe editors or publishers are afraid to take something because they don't know there's an audience they can point to. So I think the strategizing should be, I'm going to write this story. And then how can I tell this editor or this agent that it is relevant to the market today, but is also something a little bit different? And here's what's unique about my story. So when I help people put together their query letters, we talk about how can we show that there is already a selling market for this, but that yours is a unique, fresh take that hasn't been done in that market. And so we will look at the project from that point of view and and build it as a positioning exercise. I'm not sure you can can do that from the beginning of writing something because... Mm. You know, it's it's a dog chasing his own tail. You're never going to catch that trend. It's um, you're not going to be there when it's you, when you get there. It's going to be slowing down. I want to ask you about kind of demographics, and because something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is sort of I didn't grow up with a lot of YA literature. I was like maybe like ten years behind that. There was certainly books for me. Uh, I'm 42 now. There were certainly books for me, but not like there was 10, 15 years later. And YA is sort of interesting because I, I, I feel like there were so many good books for so many teens that they continue to kind of read YA into adulthood. And now there's like the new, the new adult genre. And almost what started as a demographic has almost become a, a genre of storytelling. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think that as adults, a lot of us prefer the more optimistic stories for younger people, as I said, you know, they're always sure they're going to triumph over everything in the end. And books for adults can often be a little, have a sense of more bitterness or they've dealt with the problems. And I'm perfectly happy to leave that in real life and go to the young people triumphing and finding themselves. And I feel energized by that. There have been countless studies that show that a significant portion of the YA readership is adults from, I think, 22 to 34 or something like that. And I was like you, I didn't read a lot of the YA kind of offerings, the young adult offerings until I got into publishing, why I had to go back and catch up. I certainly read some of the um, more noteworthy authors and books, but it was in, I told you I started at Harcourt in 1995 and it was I think that's the first Harry Potter book came out in 1994 or something like that. And it really, because of that explosion, it made so many grownups aware that there was incredible writing for young people and they started to explore it and they got hooked on it. And there was, there were more and more offerings. We found out that books for young people have amazing arcs. They have strong characters. They have great settings. 
and perhaps the kind of 1970s, what they called the issue book, wasn't the sole mm -hmm. defining factor of books for young people. And that really made a difference. And that really exploded. And I saw it happen because I was right there starting my career as we started repositioning our books and, and looking at what we were offering. And, you know, even just we had a lot of books about magic for middle graders and all of a sudden they exploded, whereas it had been a tough sell. And I think right now, even middle grade is probably a little more popular with adults or more hmm. so than YA. There's just amazing books in that space and people have found out and they've been recommending it. And it's easy to spread the word now with social media for all it's we can spread the word about books we like and we find out about more middle grade and more middle grade. So I love it. Yeah. I love it. And I think that adults get what they need from that. Yeah. I mean, the, the issue book, right. I remember ha having to read those. The idea for when I was growing up was like, you know, you read children's books and then when you grow up, you read uh, Tolstoy, you know, and I read, I read Tolstoy. Tolstoy is wonderful, but you know, I, I'm not so excited about a lot of the, contemporary serious literature there's not a lot of fun things happening in it or there's not that optimism and well i think one of the things that's exciting about books for young people is young people think big and they think bold and there's a lot of imagination that is still a part of their daily thinking they haven't squelched that part they they see all possibilities to the point that it's a flaw you know they they can they can do just the dumbest things because they think it's possible. And that's exciting and fun. It's even in, in books with tough subjects. As an adult, you can read that and be once again reminded that life is a joyous journey. And when we write those, we can immerse ourselves in that too. We've got, you know, I mentioned the, the horror genre. We've got some really tough stuff that has happened to the world, certainly to the country in the last few years. And you say, why in the world would young people be reading these books about, you know, zombies and monsters that are going to eat you or what have you, but it's thrilling. It's thrilling to see people work through problems and to work through your own fears through a character in the book from the safety of your own nook, um, your own reading nook. You can feel brave. You can feel like you can take on the world. It's a coping mechanism as well as, you know, challenging yourself. Can I do this scary thing? Yes, I did it. and I survived. We all want to feel that way that we can take on the scary things. When it comes to books that we don't call them issue books now, but they're mm -hmm. books that take on serious issues. And again, we, we get to triumph through that character. And as writers, we get to go through that journey with them. It can be, we can have hard moments. When we're in the darker moments with the characters, you know, I'll have sometimes authors will tell me I had to step away from the book for a couple of months. It was too much for me. But they come back and they get to the part where the sun is shining again. The problems are a new path forward has been forged. And that's a fun thing to help develop. I, I often think my job comes with a massive warm fuzzy, you know, mm. and I love that. Well, yeah, I mean, the word I kept coming up with was respectful, right? Like, we have to be respectful to actually what kids are dealing with right now in the literature they get that acknowledges the horror of the, the world. Obviously, like things aren't the status quo isn't great for everyone right now. How can we kind of start making those books that shake shape up things while also not uh, starving and having tooth decay from not having enough money to see the dentist? as working writers. The life work balance is very yeah. difficult. 
And there's no easy way around that one. I certainly don't have the solution for it. You know, we've talked about I'm a writer and between editing life and writing, if we put them in order, the life and editing come first, you know, the, the, the day job for me. So I don't have the solution to that part. I wish I did. But what was interesting is that I came into the business through the business side, mm-hmm. not first as a writer. And so I do come from a space of thinking about how can this fit in the marketplace first. And so when I'm reading, I'm looking for themes that I can pull out and, and encourage them to lean on in their query letters as they position their, their novels or picture books. You know, I do picture books. I edit mm-hmm. picture books as well. The daily challenge is a tricky one and people meet it in different ways. I have never been, I encourage critique groups, but that has never fit into my schedule or practice. And so I have a couple of write-in groups, write dash in, where we show up online and we say, hi, how is everybody? And then we turn off our cameras and work for the, the couple of hours. And then we come back online. Did you meet your goal for the day? Yeah. We don't exchange things, but we set the time aside. And I find it's best if I set the time aside for that. I spend a lot of time reading up on the marketplace so that I can helpfully inform other people. The books I'm working on, you know, I I write the, the craft books too. And so I try and work in all those aspects into, into a book so you can understand positioning the story that is important to you that you didn't conceive necessarily because of a trend. I have two new writing craft books coming out, which is writing swoonworthy fiction for teens and tweens, and then writing horror and dark fantasy for teens and tweens in the beginning of next year. And the goal to that is always, I'm going to get into the nitty gritty. I'm going to tell you how to show, don't preach at your readers or instead of tell or things like that. But I also want to, well, I want to help you finish it, first of all. How many of us start the stories and we don't finish it, but then understand the positioning next? So it's we're asked to split our brains in a lot of different ways between art and commerce. And coming from the commerce side first, I try to keep that in mind. And that's where, like I said, in my own personal space, I can freeze myself because of decisions. And so I understand that tendency. And so I do those write-ins so I can make myself write and write past those things. And thank you for that answer. I think there's a lot to unpack there. What questions should someone be able to answer for themselves before they send their manuscript to you? You, you get things at different stages, I know. Some people are stuck. Some people think it's perfect. What resolution should someone have before they're like, all right, I'm sending it to Deborah. It's time. I have never had a writer think something's perfect um, even when it's done and published uh i'll be thinking um i should change that um you in fact in that that interview that dear editor.com interview that we referenced at the beginning you said there is no final draft and i can remember seeing an interview even with tony morrison who said even when her books are published she wants to go in and work on them more so how do you know when you're done or how do you know when you're ready to move on to a next phase maybe talk to an editor or bring it to your critique group. It's, it's done with the ugly drafting part. And there's no set way, but there comes a point when you, you feel like I've done this as much as I can. And I'll speak to my role is to help someone to get it 
to the next level so then they can submit it. They're like, I feel like I've done all I can, but I also am hearing that these, from my critique friends, or I feel like this element is not strong enough. I need someone else to come in with a fresh eye. And for some people, that fresh eye does come from their critique group. In my case, you know, obviously that's hiring me with my expertise for it, but it doesn't have to be that. Many people have trusted beta readers. But there comes a moment when you feel like, I have now done the best with this phase of it, and I need someone to read it and tell me what they think of it. It might be even when you know it's still really messy and you can tell them that. Some people do find that they set a date when they are going to declare themselves done. And if that's you, set a date when you're going to give it to your friend when they come over to meet. Um, even if that friend's not a writer, you have a date set for coffee. You said on, you know, on December 7th, we're going to meet for coffee and I'm going to hand over this draft to you. I'm going to send it to you or I'm going to come in and tell you that it's done and I'm going to be telling the truth. So some people really have to set deadlines for them so they can call it done. And some people have that sense where I'm just tweaking things now. And if I'm tweaking, you know, Kathleen Krull is an amazing, she, a prolific picture book writer. And she knew she was done with her picture book draft when she was taking commas out and putting them back in again. And she's like, now I'm just fussing. And if I'm just fussing with it, then it's ready for the next phase. Um, and how do you, that can be when you decide it's ready to go for submission. I'm just fussing with it now. I feel like I've worked through it with my beta readers, my critique group, a freelance editor, if that's you. And now it's ready. I'll tell people, you make these changes that I'm suggesting. I don't need to see it again. Everything else is really good. You can feel confident in your submission. Then. And you might get it back with suggestions from those agents or editors. But uh, I'm not finding the voice strong enough. And then you can start working with that. But there, you can set yourself a date. You can decide that you're just fussing and call it done then. That would be my advice on how you know you're at the, the ever elusive final draft. Last question. As writers, there's a lot of voices that we can let in, right? You can let in your editor, you can let in your critique group, you can let in your own censor, you can let in every person who said you can't do it, or you can let in every person who said you're the most brilliant person who's ever lived. Who do you listen to at the end of the day to do your best work? I listen to people who will tell me things that are wrong. And as I said, I prefer them if they'll offer a, a suggestion, even if it's not helpful, or an example maybe, but I like to listen to people who tell me what's wrong and that's a personal preference, but I don't trust people who tell me that it's perfect. And so that may be a manifestation of my personality. I don't know, but those are the voices. I think you probably start to learn who's going to give you specific feedback. There's nothing helpful for someone to say, I like that. I like that character. There's nothing useful in that. And that's why I guess I want people who tell me what's wrong. I guess I want to hear from people who can articulate what's wrong or right. And that's a skill you learn from critiquing other manuscripts and from listening to critiques of other manuscripts. So I suppose I want someone, not necessarily who would tell me what's wrong, but who can articulate why, specifically why they do or don't like something. I think we need to do whatever we can to continue to stoke our joy in telling stories. Mm. We can get so bogged down in becoming published. We can get so bogged down in telling the story that we're doing that we lose the joy in it. 
And I fall prey to that as much as anyone else. And when I see it, I try and snap out of it and, and find a way to get around it. Even if that means setting aside a story, a particular story that's um, not giving us joy. I have a story that I've been working on a project that is not giving me joy. And I set it aside for probably about seven months now. And uh, this week I picked it up again. And in the meantime, I worked on some other things that I was having fun with. And so we just have to keep the joy. That's what's going to keep us coming to our desk every day. And that's one, what's going to ultimately, I feel like a lot is infused into a project when we are writing stuff that is not tangible and that readers pick up on that. I truly believe it. And if you're joyful in writing, then that will carry through in, gosh, even just in ways you frame a sentence or a thought. That's all the time we have today on our show. On behalf of all of us at SCBWI, I'd like to thank Deborah for making the time to talk with us today. If you liked what you've heard, check out next week's show with Varian Johnson. And please subscribe to our totally free show. It just takes one click. And please head over to scbwi.org if you want to learn more about the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. This episode was produced by Chelsea Kimiko Hall and edited by Samantha Thomas. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.